Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute Podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance. The Precision Oncology Alliance is a rapidly growing network of healthcare systems and academic institutions across the world focused on precision oncology and biomarker-driven research with the goal of improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. This podcast comes to you every few weeks, and we tackle the intersection of clinical medicine and precision oncology. We're continuing on our series of liquid biopsies, and I am hosting today Dr. Stephen Liu from MedStar and Georgetown University to go over liquid biopsy and its applicability in thoracic malignancies. You do not want to miss that. So don't forget to subscribe to the show. You can find it on all podcast outlets. Please um, also support the show by uh, rating it, writing a brief review, and recommending it to friends and colleagues. Without further ado, Dr. Stephen Liu on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Okay, well, here we are. We are going to talk. We, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to host Dr. Stephen Liu from uh, MedStar and Georgetown University to talk about all things liquid biopsy in thoracic oncology. Stephen has been on the Keras Molecular Minute uh, before. Uh, he's a, a good friend of the show, and he actually hosts his own podcast as well. He'll tell us a little bit about it because I do recommend it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a listener and a subscriber to, the, to his podcast. So, Stephen, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. Maybe a little bit about you, where you practice, what you do, and um, tell us a little bit about your podcast. I'm a big fan. <laughs> it's nice of you to say, uh, Chadi. So my name is Steve Liu. I'm a medical oncologist. I focus on the treatment of lung cancer and other thoracic cancers. I practice at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and I've been here since about 2013 uh, after training in Los Angeles. I run the thoracic oncology group at Georgetown and also the phase one drug development group there. Uh, it's, it's a good team. I, I really enjoy uh, my work there. The podcast I host is specifically on lung cancer. It's called uh, Lung Cancer Considered. It's the official podcast of the IASLC, the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. And I co-host that with a friend and colleague, Dr. Narjus Duma, and uh, we release episodes every other week focused specifically on thoracic malignancies. Yeah, it's uh, and you are a very you're a very avid tweeter, I would say. So your Twitter handle is at Stephen Liu, correct? Uh, at Stephen V Liu. V is the middle uh, initial. V Liu. Um, I would say that in every thoracic oncology meeting, I definitely don't need to go to any of these meetings. I'll just, I just see what you say and, and we'll move on. <laughs> oh no, you'll, you'll miss out. The meetings, the thoracic meetings are the best, uh, great people, <laughs> a lot of things to do. Uh, you'll never guess what the V stands for though, Johnny. But I don't know. Is it your middle name, middle initial? No? No. So I don't have a middle name or a middle initial. Um, when I was a resident at Penn, uh, you know, I was publishing my first paper there in oncology and my mentor there said, you know, are you interested in academic career? And, you know, you say yes, whether it's true or not, you say yes. Of course. And, um, you know, he said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but your name is extremely common. Stephen Liu is a very common name, uh, especially in PubMed, whereas S. Liu, it's extremely common because S is also, uh, you know, a lot of Chinese names start with S. Right. It's a very common name. So he said, if you want an academic career, you should have a middle initial. I said, well, I don't have a middle name. And he says, that doesn't matter. Just pick an initial. 
I went home like, I, I, I don't know, are you allowed to do that? I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but I guess you are allowed to do that. And so I, um, uh, you know, went through PubMed and basically I went through the alphabet and we went through every letter and we looked for which S blank Lou uh, did not have a lot of oncology publications. Actually, it was more hematology. I was interested in more hematology. This is an unbelievable story. So we went through and I think there were like uh, eight or nine where there wasn't really much at all. You know, some that you think would be rare, like X. X is very common because a lot of the Chinese names start with X. Uh, so, you know, V was one. It's not common. We really have V in Chinese. So V was one that wasn't common, but there was a list of about eight or nine. And I just went to my wife and showed her the list. And I said, I need a middle initial. And she said, oh, V for victory. <laughs> I love that story. I love that story. On that paper, my middle initial, Stephen V. Lou, the V doesn't stand for anything. It's not on my birth certificate or driver's license or anything like that. But at some point, it just kind of stuck. And even now, my work profile, my work email has the V in there even though it's not really part oh of my, my name. Oh my God, this is a great story. So that is my Twitter handle, Stephen V. Lou, but the V stands for nothing like Harry S. Stands for victory. All right. So um, you've been doing a lot of thoracic oncology, obviously, over the years. And, and you know, obviously, there are a lot of advances in thoracic oncology and target therapy and so on. I want to focus a little bit on the liquid biopsy. And I want to try to simplify things because some of our listeners are not specialized like yourself. They are general oncologists. Some of them are fellows, students, and so on. So when we talk about liquid biopsy, what are we exactly doing? Right. So it's a very important tool and one that is underutilized. But basically, when we talk about liquid biopsy, we're really talking about the analysis of cancer genomic DNA, genomic material in the blood, in the plasma. Uh, you'll see terms like liquid biopsy, like circulating tumor DNA, cell-free DNA, they're generally referring to the same thing, the analysis of cancer genomic material from a blood sample. And there are a lot of uh, advantages uh, to, to using this type of testing. There are pros and cons to it, but overall it is underutilized. It is not uh, the replacement for a tissue biopsy. Even though the word biopsy is in there, we use biopsy as just a way to sort of acquire the material as of now, it is not really an accepted way to diagnose a cancer. And so we can't send off a liquid biopsy and reach a diagnosis of adenocarcinoma of the lung. That's not really how it works. It's more specifically referring to the genomic material. But there are a lot of things we can do from the blood. And in years past, a very important assay we would run, well, I guess we can argue about whether it was important or not, but circulating tumor cells and this was an approved test, and this was something that provided prognostic information for things like prostate cancer and breast cancer, um, that is something different. And so we're not counting the number of cells that are circulating in the blood. We're really analyzing the genomic material to try to understand you know, the, the genomic makeup uh, when it's relevant. That's really what we're talking about when we, when we say liquid biopsy. And you said, obviously, tissue remains the golden standard to make initial diagnosis. So my two questions is, number one, uh, what, what do you want as a medical oncologist? What do you like to see concordance between tissue and blood? Because I'm not a thoracic oncologist, but nothing's going to be 100%. But what are, what are you willing to tolerate in terms of lack of concordance? And number two, if you don't use liquid biopsy for initial diagnosis, then when is it usually used in thoracic oncology? Yeah, these are good questions. I think our, our answers are evolving. 
I think that liquid biopsy can play a very important role in lung cancer and its role is definitely larger now than it was before, but it's very situational. So when we look at, at lung cancer and we'll talk about non-small cell lung cancer, if I have someone with a stage four non-small cell lung cancer present to my clinic, the biopsy that tells me adenocarcinoma of the lung uh, is not the, the final uh, point in, in terms of diagnosis. That's not the finish line. That's really the start. We have adenocarcinoma of the lung. Now I really need insight into the genomic identity. I need to know what mutations are underlying that cancer uh, because there will be mutations. I need to know what they are. The presence of specific mutations might direct me towards targeted therapy as our initial treatment. The absence of mutations would direct me towards immunotherapy. And not knowing puts me at a, a severe disadvantage. Um, and so it's no longer an optional thing that we can do. It's not some uh, test we do in an ivory tower. Uh, this really is an essential part of the diagnosis of lung cancer. So we use a tissue biopsy to tell us the histology and to confirm that a cancer is present. But after that, I need the genomic information and it's not optional. You have to have it. If we see a driver, we're going to go towards targeted therapy, usually pills that work almost immediately, that work very well for almost everyone. Uh, in many cases that work for years, uh, a very effective treatment. If I don't see a driver, then we'll go to immunotherapy, uh, which also gives us the potential for durable disease control for some people, maybe even cure, but I can't mix those up. If someone has a cancer with a driver mutation and I miss it and I don't properly test and it's there and I miss it, then I would assume it wasn't there. I would give that person immunotherapy and immunotherapy will not work there. So it's not just about choosing the right treatment. It's about not choosing the wrong treatment. And the stakes are very high. You have to get it right the first time. The sequence of these drugs has uh, very important and significant consequences. So we need to know. So once we make a diagnosis of lung cancer, I need that genomic information. And our standard has been tissue testing. You're right. Uh, we, we've routinely done tissue testing. We would do next generation sequencing on a biopsy, looking for drivers like mutations in EGFR, KRAS, and BRAF, like fusions in ALK and RET and ROS1 uh, and so forth. We would look for those with tissue. Liquid biopsy came onto the scene uh, relatively recently and the technology has rapidly advanced. And you are right in that it's not 100% perfect. It is not 100% concordant, but I don't need it to be. Um, uh, I think that it is complementary to tissue testing. And there are some very nice studies that have shown, depending on the type of tissue testing you're doing, that sometimes tissue will pick things up um, that liquid will miss. And sometimes liquid will pick things up that tissue will miss. And so it really is my preference to do both, to do both in parallel. The advantage of liquid biopsy, at least one advantage, is it comes back much quicker for a lot of different reasons, a lot of them technical, but we will routinely get results back within a week and time is of the essence. So if I have someone come into my clinic and I order tissue testing, that may take anywhere from two to four weeks, depending on the specific vendor and test you're using. Whereas liquid biopsy will routinely come back in one week. And, and I can tell you that a couple of weeks can make a big difference in terms of getting to the right treatment. So one big importance is speed. When we look at the results, we also have to understand that they are not perfectly sensitive. Liquid biopsies are not perfectly sensitive, um, but they are fairly specific. And so if I see a RET fusion on a liquid biopsy, I'm acting on it. We are starting a selective RET inhibitor like prosetinib or selpercatinib. It's going to work very quickly. We're going to get on our right path. We're going to be set. A false positive there is pretty uncommon. 
If I don't see anything there, that does not mean that there's no fusion present. It means that I need to wait now for the tissue. Um, and uh, that, that lack of, of sensitivity is important, especially for lung cancer if it's only thoracic disease. There may just not be a lot of shedding of the, the, the genomic material. And so I may not find it in the blood, partly depends on, on the assays you're using as well. Uh, but we don't believe a negative, we wait for the tissue, but we believe a positive. Generally, that's enough to act on. Stephen, when you look at uh, uh, liquid biopsies, they've probably been used for the past several years. Um, and I know, obviously, as you know, we are working on our own platform here at Keras. But, but, but what were, I would say, the top two, three pain points that you were experiencing with available platforms at least as, a, as an oncologist, as you utilize the, the liquid biopsy. I think the concordance we talked about, it's an issue. Are there any other elements that you would have wanted these to be overcome? Well, we like speed. We want an answer right away. And for a while, the, the testing took a little bit too long. Didn't really offer much of an advantage. But um, I think one big thing is that speed. When you get it down to a week, you know, a lot of people will, will see a patient and say, come back in a week. And so a week to us is like a nice sort of round unit of time, having results back in a week is, is important. So I think that speed was an issue that has improved. Um, certainly we can always work on improving how we report the assays. And I think that um, it's a fine balance. We want information, but sometimes it can contribute a little bit to the noise. And so we have to be careful with how we're reporting these, but more information has been helpful. For example, we've seen a trend lately in terms of reporting variant allele frequency. And while it's not a perfect quantitative analysis, liquid biopsy, it can give us some clues. And so um, seeing those values, I think, provides us a little bit of information in the right context. And I think that's helpful. But to me, the biggest point about liquid biopsy has been the lack of sensitivity for fusions. Pretty good at, at picking out um, you know, DNA mutations. Um, those are, are pretty straightforward. Gene fusions are challenging for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the technological limitations uh, with the currently available liquid biopsy platforms make it a little challenging sometimes to pick up gene fusion. So anecdotally, there have been a lot of fusions missed from liquid biopsy, and that's definitely an area where we can hopefully improve. As you know, I've done a lot of work in lymphomas and CLL where, you know, talking about minimal residual disease and MRD is, you know, kind of, I can understand it in, in, in hematologic malignancies. I have to admit, when I first started listening about MRD in solid tumors, I'm like, what are these people talking about? What do you mean MRD in solid tumors? So take us through this, because I think there's a lot now happening about MRD, early detection, things like that, where I believe, from what I'm reading, that you guys are exploring liquid biopsy platform to, to, to monitor some of these things. So in thoracic malignancies, uh, wh where are things are in MRD early detection? And are you using liquid biopsies in early stage disease after adjuvant therapy to see if uh, patients are going to recur or mainly just advanced stage? Right. So right now, liquid biopsy is mostly used in the advanced stage. We are very eager to integrate it into our management of early stage. And as innovative and as forward thinking and novel as thoracic oncology is, between you and me, Chadi, if no one else is listening, uh, we're mostly just copying everything from heme malignancies, right? Okay, targeted good. Therapy. I hope a lot of people are listening, though. <laughs> uh, targeted therapy, kinase inhibitors, resistance, all these things we borrow from heme malignancies and sort of bring them to the, to the, the main thing. Um, 
right now, the, the use for liquid biopsy is primarily in two settings. The first is a diagnosis. Someone comes in, they're diagnosed with an advanced non-small cell lung cancer. I need to know if genomic alterations are present. And so we send off a liquid biopsy. It comes back very quickly. It will tell me if one is present or absent. The other situation where it's used now is at the time of resistance. And so you can imagine that if someone has an ALK fusion in their cancer, we start an ALK inhibitor. And the treatment works very well, works on average for, let's say, three years. After about three years, that cancer starts to grow. So we were giving a pill that was working, and then it stopped working. And if we didn't change the pill, and the patient didn't change any other medicines, they're still taking it, compliant, all those things, uh, the only explanation is that the cancer must have somehow changed. The cancer must have changed, and that's why this pill is not working. I didn't change my treatment. It's not working as well. So there must be something different about the cancer. If we could isolate what that difference is, then we can modify, update, redirect our treatment. And that's a time where we'll use liquid biopsy. We'll send off a liquid biopsy, and maybe we'll see an acquired, a new point mutation in ALK. Importantly, that original ALK fusion doesn't go anywhere. For driver alterations in lung cancer, they don't leave. So you don't lose your EGFR deletion 19 mutation. You don't lose the ALK fusion. Those are still present, but additional alterations can accumulate. So in addition to that EML4 ALK fusion, I may see a new ALK point mutation. And then I can go to the literature and say, well, with this point mutation, my, my current drug of choice, a drug like brigatinib, is no longer working. It doesn't work because of this specific mutation. This explains why this drug is no longer working. And I can now reach over to my shelf and pick out a medicine that does work in the presence of this mutation. So it helps me explain why a drug isn't working, helps me choose the next line of therapy. And so liquid biopsy is very helpful in the setting of resistance. Again, it doesn't replace tissue biopsy. It complements it because what can also happen in that setting is it can change histology. And we know that these driver positive lung cancers can change to small cell, can change to squamous cell, something that is underreported and that is only diagnosed with a tissue biopsy. So again, it's both. Liquid biopsy is complementary to tissue biopsy. Ideally, it would be complementary as well, uh, but I guess that's more of a business decision. We can um, uh, talk about that later. But right now we're using liquid biopsy at the time of diagnosis and at the time of resistance. The future, we think, will be serial testing and using it in a couple different ways that you alluded to. And one is, is minimal residual disease. But I think uh, it, it really goes beyond that. When I started therapy, uh, I'm, I'm sort of basing it on the evidence, on trials, a percentage of patients that will benefit currently available therapy. But to some degree, there's some uncertainty. I don't know for certain that this drug will work. And if I start a new therapy, it would be very nice for me to know early on, is it working? Um, and how do I know that the drug is working? In lung cancer, it's generally radiographic studies. It's a CT scan. And we'll do a CT scan after two or three months. And it's a long time for us to wait, knowing the natural history of lung cancer, a lung cancer that's not being treated appropriately is not gonna hang out for two or three months. It's gonna grow and, and that could cause problems. So it would be nice to get early feedback. In addition, especially with some therapies like immunotherapy, uh, sometimes those initial scans are a little difficult to interpret. So wouldn't it be nice if there were a blood test? And this are you, is- are, are you ready though to switch therapy based on the blood test? Like let's say you're monitoring radiographically, it's still stable, but you see evidence that the, you're, you're, you're detecting the mutation. 
in the blood. Um, is the field ready to switch therapy at the time of molecular relapse before radiographic relapse, or is it still under study? So we are not ready to do that, but we are ready to talk about it. We are ready to study it um, because it would be great if I had an early blood test that said, you know what, Stephen, you are on the wrong path. Right. The choice you made is totally reasonable. I can tell you now with some certainty, this is not going to end up the way that you want it. And if we had a study that showed me this liquid biopsy result at this time point tells you with X degree of certainty that this is not going to pan out like you want, then we can do a study that says, well, if I see that, what if I add this other drug? Or what if I switch to something else? What if I modify that approach? We definitely need to prove that. And today we are not ready to do that, but we are ready to study it. We are ready to think about it now that we have some of the tools that can reliably detect that. So the future, I think we'll be using this as a much more accurate tumor marker, a pharmacodynamic marker that tells you, is your treatment working the way you think and hoped that it would. I think that's going to be the future, um, these early responses. Uh, and really, it's something that patients expect. We do a blood test with every visit, and the patients are waiting for those results. And you know, I think a lot of patients assume that those results tell me if the treatment's working, but they don't. Those results tell me about toxicity, uh, about safety, but they provide no information really on efficacy. That's really what we need, and I think that'll come. Do you have today uh, in 2021, as we get close to 2022, do you, is there um, a median time from molecular relapse until radiographic relapse? I mean, is it a couple of months, six months, two years? Do, or we, don't, we just don't know. Yeah, we don't totally know yet consistently. What we've seen from targeted therapy studies is that looking at cell-free DNA, looking at liquid biopsies, a drop in detection of the alteration, whether it's an EGFR mutation, a RET fusion, a drop in allelic fraction um, correlates with, with very good long-term outcomes. Yeah. And that's logical. That makes sense. That's not quite the same as saying a rise means you're not going to do well. And right. it's definitely not the same as saying a rise means that you need to change therapy and that will be a future benefit. That may just be a poor prognostic sign that this is a cancer that we're not going to be able to treat well. Um, but I have to believe there's an intervention for every cancer. And an early sign that we're not on the right path might give us more time to find that right path. Now, that's a little different from minimal residual disease, but similar type of concept. In someone who's had surgery or someone who's had chemotherapy and radiation, someone who's had potentially curative therapy, then detection of CTDNA afterwards might tell us that they're not cured. Because if you've done surgery, if you've done chemo radiation and, and really cured a cancer, the half-life of cell-free DNA is pretty short. So there really should not be detectable tumor DNA six months later, three months later, three weeks later. There really shouldn't be detectable DNA. So if I see that, that might tell me that, um, that, that a cancer is still remaining. And maybe those are patients that would better benefit from more therapy. Maybe that's how we can get more benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant immunotherapy, adjuvant targeted therapy. What we've seen over the past year are some big results of adjuvant studies in the targeted space with osimertinib for EGFR mutant lung cancer, and more recently in Empower 10 with atezolizumab for resected stage 2, 3, pd one positive non-small cell lung cancer. Um, those approvals show a disease-free survival improvement in a large population. But it would be great if the legacy for those trials was that people with detectable minimal residual disease are the people that are not cured and the people that are more likely to benefit from these expensive and sometimes toxic therapies. 
These are very great points, Stephen. Just in the last minute or two, um, you know, as you know, at Keras, we are uh, launching a couple of studies looking at minimal visual disease and early detection and so on. And you've uh, you've been uh, part of the initial uh, rollout of some of the efforts on the liquid biopsies. Um, anything you want to share with listeners about uh, how this has been, and then and then I'll let you go back to your own podcast. Well, it's it's been great. Um, uh, what we what we really need as I mentioned before, is something that allows us to detect fusions. And uh, the, the upcoming platform is different in a very important fundamental way in that it will allow for the analysis of RNA. And RNA uh, analysis, I think RNA sequencing is critical in the management of non-small cell lung cancer. Right now, when we're doing next generation sequencing, we can do it on DNA or we can do it on RNA, or in the case of Keras, we can do both. For DNA, this is very good, very reliable. This is what most platforms are doing. RNA is not done by all platforms. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of medical oncologists, just we just don't know because this wasn't really part of our training. So we need the details. We need to know if RNA is being done. RNA is going to be superior if there are large introns, big stretches of non-coding DNA, big genes like NTRAC3, like NRG1. You're going to have trouble finding those with DNA sequencing, because there's not enough coverage depth because the introns are too long. If there are a lot of repetitive introns um, or complex genomic events, that's going to make it hard for DNA to pick up some of these alterations. And that's going to be common with ROS1 fusions and with Medexon 14 skip mutations um, and NTRAC. And so if you're not seeing any NTRAC or Medex14 or ROS1, maybe it's because these are rare events or maybe it's because the platform we're using isn't ideally tuned to that. Now, liquid biopsy platforms primarily are DNA-based. If there were a platform that were both DNA and RNA, it could give us that additional dimension where maybe it, it equips us better to detect fusions and these complex genomic events, which I would say are equally important. Again, when a mutation is there, when a fusion is there, we cannot miss it. And so any test that's going to be more sensitive in the same amount of time as one that I would welcome. And to me, that is, I think, the biggest important uh, advance that the Keras platform could provide. Well, this is wonderful, Stephen. I really appreciate you uh, jumping on this uh, podcast, uh, always supportive of uh, the Keras Molecular Minute uh, podcast. So uh, thank you so much. And uh, looking forward to uh, seeing you live at some point. Definitely ASCO 2022, but hopefully before. Hopefully before. Hopefully. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you supporting the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you for listening to applications of liquid biopsy in thoracic malignancies with Dr. Stephen Liu. Uh, make sure you let me know how I'm doing by uh, direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email to cnabhan at kerasls.com. Thank you for your support. And until next time, stay safe.